0: everybody you're listening to It's All About Food. I'm your host, Karen Hartglass. Thank you for joining me. We're going to dig deep into the mind and our thoughts and our consciousness and ethics today, okay? My guest is Dr. Jonathan Layton. He is an ethics strategist and social change advocate. He is the author of The Battle of Compassion, Ethics in an Apathetic Universe in which he takes a methodical approach to answering the question, what matters? Tying in findings from physics, biology, psychology, and philosophy. Since June 2016, he is the executive director of the Organization of the Prevention of Intense Suffering, a Swiss think-and-do tank he founded to promote the application of compassionate ethics to societal decision-making. OPUS has been advocating for better access to effective medications for people in severe pain, including patients with terminal cancer or cluster headaches, and more generally for governments to prioritize the prevention of intense suffering of all sentient beings. Originally from Montreal, Canada, Leighton trained as a research molecular biologist, obtaining an AB from Harvard University and a PhD from the University of Basel. He has worked as a scientist studying the molecular basis of olfaction, as well as in global health and biotech communications. He is one of the leading proponents of a contemporary approach to ethics that focuses explicitly on the prevention and alleviation of suffering. My guest, Dr. Jonathan Layton, is talking with me from Greece. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: It's a real pleasure. Really happy to be on your podcast.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I discovered you on Facebook on, um, I think it was the Reduce Insect Suffering Group. And it's not something that a lot of people think about, reducing insect suffering. And uh, I read a lot of interesting things there. So I found you and I learned that you had a new book out, The Tango of Ethics. And also that you had created this organization for the prevention of intense suffering. So uh, you piqued my interest, and (laughs) I'm really honored that you're taking the time to speak with me. I'm very interested in, in you and your work and talking about suffering and how we can prevent it. Let's start with you and who you are and how you got on to being interested in reducing suffering, especially intense suffering. And then we'll get to your book.
1: Okay, well, I guess, in a a sense, it goes back to some of the things I was exposed to as a child. Uh, Not personally, but in elementary school, we were shown scenes, uh, you know, video footage and photos of what happened in the Holocaust. So, and I think, you know, partly because of the particular disposition I seem to have, I was particularly affected by a lot of these images. Um, I, I I have no idea how some of my classmates at the time were affected, but a lot of these images left a lasting impression on me. And I think somehow they influenced um, my feelings about what I wanted to do with my career. Now, initially, my plan was to go into biomedical research. I had this idea that um, you know since my my aptitudes were very much in a scientific direction. I thought I could have an influence on the world by, um, you know, studying cancer and maybe finding a cure for some forms of cancer. But eventually, I found that you know I did a PhD, but it was not actually in the field of cancer research. Um, partly for personal reasons, I ended up um, I ended up doing my PhD in Switzerland in a lab that was studying other things um, that were in the end less related to human health. And I found myself drifting farther away from the things I cared about, Um, doing some interesting things uh, in industry in the perfume industry, actually uh, Mm -hmm. trying to understand how the sense of smell works. But eventually, I was drawn back to this core idea of, you know, what do we do about suffering in the world? And at some point, I basically decided to drop what I was doing professionally, which at the time was working at a communications agency in Geneva Hmm. and working working on subjects like biotechnology and global health. And I really had two objectives. One was to um, write a book and I already had a lot of notes uh, written down and I wanted to consolidate them and take the time to work uh, on the book. That That ended up being my first book, which came out in 2011. And I also had... The idea of starting up my own organization that would put scientific ideas into practice, so that we can become more effective in preventing and reducing suffering in the world. So, you know, that really, in in a nutshell, is um, was my trajectory, um, at least until the point where I, where I decided to basically go off on my own and do my own thing and really focus on what I was passionate about.
0: What? I'm curious about is why your story is somewhat unique. There are not many people who, as a child, see something, make a connection, and then later in life feel they have an obligation almost to do something about the issues that they've seen that appear wrong. And and I'm I'm choosing my words now, and I'm not doing a very good job because I read your book, The Tango of Ethics, and I'm realizing there's a lot of semantics. And what do we mean by everything? And we really should be careful about choosing what we say, but we'll get there later. Don't pick on me. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, I I didn't have a similar story, but I remember when I was young. Um, I'm curious to read your book, The Battle for Compassion now, because um, you talk about what matters. And I remember as a child thinking, uh, what matters? And does anything matter? And deciding that really nothing mattered. And then, but I was here on earth, so I would make things matter and try and do the best that I could and and be nice. (laughs) And maybe even apply the golden rule, which you talk about in your book. And I also have a background—not not the same—but I studied chemical engineering, and I went off and did some chemical engineering, and realized that you know that's not what I was about either. But you know, a lot of people don't get to that place and don't see truth and don't want to face reality and go off and live nice lives and those are the people that have a relative amount of privilege on this planet, because then there are the others that are just in survival or they're suffering. And there's all different uh, ways lives can go. But I'm just curious for those of us who have a reasonably nice life and, and food to eat and options and education, why we don't go this route of wanting to reduce suffering?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I would, I would argue that, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree, actually, that I, there are a lot of people that do devote a lot of their time to philanthropic causes. People that uh, you know that work for charities, for NGOs, or people that um, decide to give away some of their earnings as, as philanthropists. So, I, you know, I think people are affected to greater or lesser extents by suffering in the world, um, and you know, just just because I'm focused. On the concept of suffering and digging, maybe in some ways a little bit deeper ethically, um, doesn't necessarily mean I'm having more impact than than uh, you know countless other people that are really doing you know essential work on the ground, um, you know whether it's helping humans or or animals or creating organizations, um, but in terms of you know what really drew me to this subject and to try to explore it in a deeper way. Um, I mean, part of it is, I guess, just my personality, just uh, this curiosity, but understanding how things work, which I guess I've had since I was a, since I was a kid. Um, I wanted to understand how the world works, uh, you know, in the really big sense. And once I sort of felt I had a an understanding in terms of basic mechanisms, you know, which I talk about in the Battle for Compassion, Um, you know looking at things through the lens of evolutionary psychology and and evolution more generally and the fact that you know we're just we just evolved on this planet as a result of random processes and uh, suffering got thrown in to the mix because it was evolutionarily useful and um, you know and humans compete with one another for status and cooperate and you know a, a couple of sort of very basic principles can explain a lot about how the world works. And then the second question was, well, given what we know about how the world works, how do we decide what our priorities should be? And this has ended up, ended up being, well, it was partly the subject of my first book and um, and it's something I developed more in my new book. And um, it, you know, I've given myself the time to do this. Um, when I quit my last regular job, it was almost like I describe it sometimes as jumping out of an airplane and having faith that there will be a parachute that will open before I hit the ground. And I seem to have um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it as the most secure career path, but I'm I'm happy I made that decision because it really allowed me to, in, in a sense, compensate for not doing things earlier that were really aligned with who I am and my values and then giving myself the uh, the time to really explore in depth this very basic question. How do we decide what our priorities should be? And, you know, give myself self the time to think about it. And then ideally try to put these ideas into practice.
0: I just want to go back to the people, the kind people out there that are doing good things and are donating to charities and doing philanthropic work. I appreciate all of that. There's a certain amount of, of closed-mindedness where, Even if we're doing good things, we don't want to see everything. We feel good about doing some good things, but other things we just want to ignore. And okay, that's just the way it is. And when you talk about value, how do we value the work that we do? And is your work better than my work or somebody else's work? And is somebody more effective? You talk about value in the book too. I don't know that we know how to, to really attribute value to anyone's work. So what I wanted to say just about your book and why I'm glad you wrote it, you may not agree with me and that's okay, (laughs) but I kind of think that there's some sort of global consciousness and just you thinking about it and putting your thoughts down on a page makes it accessible to us, whether we read your book or not, it's, it's, it's there. And that's a good thing.
1: Well, thanks. (laughs) I mean, I definitely, you know, I wrote the book with the hope that there would be some impact. Um, You know, considering the amount of time that went into it, I mean, you know, way more time than I ever expected. You know, one of the ideas in the book is to, um, well, one of the ideas I I tried to propagate is this old idea from, uh, that was expressed by Gandhi, to be the change you want to see in the world, and to serve as a kind of a model of how you would ideally like more people in the world to be, and I'm not claiming to be some kind of a model in that respect, um, but this is what this is actually one of the core ideas well there, there are many ideas of course that I develop in the book but this is one of the ideas that I, I, I communicate towards the end is this idea of being the change you want to see in the world and and it's really based on this idea of how do we spread the right kind of ideas I mean even determining what the right ideas are um, is very difficult but you know just the basic idea of compassion and kindness and trying to have impact, I think, are some basic core ideas. There's nothing very original about them. But my book is, I guess, one more vehicle for these ideas to spread. You know, Of course, there, there are other themes in the book. And one of the key ones is, is, uh, is impact. I mean, impact is really um, I, ultimately what I think ethics is about. And this is one of the core themes that I, I, I focus on. There are many different ideas about ethics Um, and you know three of the main theories are virtue ethics, which is more about how to be a good person, which is more about character. There's deontology, which is about what kind of rules do we want to follow. And then there's consequentialism, which is really about measuring impact and. Okay, now we're starting to get into the nitty gritty of what I write about. I don't try to frame things in terms of right or wrong uh, or what we should do or what we ought to um, ought to do. I, th- I think that is, it can be a distraction and I don't think it's always the most rigorous way of looking at things. So I, I try to avoid that kind of framing. But what I do say is that if we want to change anything in the world, then we need to somehow measure the consequences of our actions. If all our thinking about ethics is divorced from actual change in the world, then it's not very useful. So ultimately, I think ethics is about impact. But we can follow rules to try to be more impactful because um, sometimes it's just a lot easier to follow rules that have been well thought out and to try to make decisions individually in every situation. And, and then I would argue that you know, what does it mean to be a good person? Um, you know, if we're really concerned about labels, which I don't think we should be, but um, but if you know, what kind of character would we ideally like people to have? Well, to care about the well-being of others, other humans, and, and other sentient beings. So I think that these are these three different, um, let's say, categories of ethical thinking are actually very complementary. And ideally, what we want to do is see how we can respond to urgency in the world, suffering, suffering which has urgency, which cries out for action and so you know you're talking about value and and this is really one of the big questions in ethics which is what has value and the, you know there are many ideas about what value is and and I th- you know you're talking earlier about about the problem with language and 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 what, what i what i think has happened in ethics is that People have lots of associations with the word value, um, and that includes value in an economic sense. And I think that a lot of these definitions of value, or some of them anyways, have been imported into ethical thinking without really being put into question. Because like in economics, there's this idea that whatever has value, the more of it, the better. Mm -hmm. Sort of implied, you know, we want to increase GDP, we want to increase economic value. It's almost like a given. You know whatever is good, the more of it, the better. This is actually one of the um, this was one of my initial motivations for starting to write this new book was that I disagreed with some of the ways that people thought about value. And so, to elaborate on this idea, you know you, you can you can you can reduce experiences in an ethical sense to things like happiness and suffering. There may be lots of other things that people care about that they value, but I would argue that everything many of the things that we value actually come down to happiness, including things like knowledge uh, and and beauty and art. We appreciate these things because they give us pleasure. If we didn't appreciate them, if they didn't give us happiness, we probably wouldn't value them. But then there's a there's a distinction between striving to create more bliss more happiness in the universe and responding to the call to action of suffering and this is where there's there there are differences of opinion you know within the network that uh, the community of people that I interact with that are uh, that are very involved in philanthropy and guiding decision making I take the view that there's something unique about suffering it suffering cries out for action, and I don't believe that you can logically balance it out by adding happiness. Now, I, I don't mean that in a personal sense, because obviously we all put up with some suffering because we want to, ex- we want to be happier. And sometimes we'll, you know, we'll experience delayed gratification or do things we don't really want to do. Um, and there are lots of other examples, but some of the thinking around impact, um, Uses numbers in ways that I don't think are rationally justifiable. The idea that you can, that suffering can be represented by negative numbers, that happiness can be represented by positive numbers, and if you have enough happiness, it just count, it balances out the suffering. I don't think that's logical. I don't think that's a, a correct use of numbers. And and this idea was one of the, as I said, this was one of the the initial driving points for wanting to write this book because I wanted to, I wanted to explore what is what really makes sense in an ethical theory and what are some of the assumptions that have gone into a lot of ethical thinking that i think are not justified and so that was yeah that was one of the purposes of the book to to think a little bit more about the concept of value and you know the kind of value that we appreciate when we experience it and the value that actually has a need to be created And one of my arguments is that the the only real need there is is to reduce or to prevent suffering. And again, that doesn't mean that happiness doesn't have value when we experience it. And also, you know, happiness can be very valuable as a way of reducing suffering. You know, it contributes to overall well-being. The more the happier, the more blissful experiences we have, the more we spend time with friends, the less pain that any pain that we might be experiencing influences our well-being. so there, there are very concrete ways where happiness does actually reduce suffering, but it becomes a different issue when we talk about our priorities and is, is it more important to try to address suffering. And when I talk about suffering, I mean, you know, really the worst kinds of suffering, the torture of animals on factory farms or, or humans who are in pain and can't get effective medications and, and other less tractable causes should those things have priority or should we be just be trying to replicate the light the situation that we already have on our planet right now and you know fill the universe with with similar kinds of situations and i would say you know let's try to let's address suffering first and then if we can if we can fix things here then we can think about trying to expand expand the number of sentient beings i think right now um the situation on the planet is not something we would ideally want to replicate just because of the 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 huge amounts of suffering that you know going back to what you were saying before people don't necessarily want to empathize with and why don't they want to empathize getting back to your question I think it's just um it can be overwhelming it can be overwhelming to come to terms with the degree of suffering that other sentient beings experience
0: This concept of value is so important, and I'm glad you started this conversation, and I'm going to be thinking about it a lot. I know with NGOs and philanthropic work, there's always this need to quantify how much good every dollar or every unit of currency is offering, and you want to put your money in the best place. And and so we need these metrics, and some things are not measurable or at least we don't know how to measure them at this point. So organizations want to do something, they want to do good. And so they end up fitting into the framework that they've been given in order to do something. But it, it's all about framing. And I say about half of your book is talking about definitions and different approaches people have to framing how we approach ethics. And it was interesting for me because I don't, normally read about ethics and one of your goals was to make it understandable and readable and i think you achieved that i found it very readable in fact i read it very quickly because i wanted to get to this our discussion i need to go back and and sit with some things to totally incorporate it but there were lots of wonderful concepts and we all need all of humanity needs to learn how to think better <laughs> You know we're we're socialized. We've got culture. We've got all this mythology we believe in, and at some point we need to see the reality and truth. And I think that would help.
1: Well, I, I'm glad that uh, that you found it readable. I, you know, I was in a sense addressing two different audiences, and
0: um, that's not easy. And,
1: no, well, I mean, either you, you know either you uh, reach out, you manage to attract both, or there's, a, but there could also be a risk of uh, not really appealing to either. Um, you know, my my initial audience, when I, uh, when I started writing the book, the, the initial audience I had in mind, um, was members of the, you know, the effective altruism community that I'm part of, who, um, you know, we're all basically trying to do good with the resources available, but might have different ideas about the underlying values and what matters. So that was sort of my first audience um, you know i'm hoping to appeal as well to academic philosophers, even though I don't write in a typical academic style and it's not as highly re- referenced as you might expect from a purely academic work, but then you know i'm hoping to appeal to people who don't necessarily have a background in philosophy. We're just interested in thinking about what matters. So yeah, I I I've been hoping that uh that the book would be perceived as readable and uh it would appeal to you know an, an educated readership about of, of people who who care and want to think more about these basic questions. And uh but getting back to your question about um about framing and uh you know the framing of impact and how we Oh, NGOs might find themselves having to, you know, sort of adjust the way they, re- they represent their metrics. Um, I mean, ultimately, we do need to have some way of measuring what matters. If we measure the wrong kinds of things, we can end up actually being doing things that are counterproductive. And, and that is, you know, that's why one of the key issues of my uh, key things of the book is, is ensuring that the that the map matches the territory. And that the numbers we use actually represent the things that matter. So you know, I think we we can represent suffering with numbers, but we shouldn't imagine that lots of people suffering from minor headaches is the same thing as uh, one person suffering the agony of torture. Yeah, and this applies to NGOs as well that maybe maybe not be measuring suffering directly, but will be measuring some other something else that might eventually correlate with suffering. But, you know, I, I would say that in the end, the, the key thing that we need to be striving for is to reduce suffering on the planet. That doesn't mean that every intervention will be will be proven to be impactful. I think some of the most, most ambitious interventions or projects um, might have relatively little evidence base, but we need to sometimes take risks Uh, you know, to affect systemic change, um, to do things that are, that are creative and other people are not doing, and then have a chance, chance of inspiring people, even if we can't point to huge successes in the past.
0: And that just adds to the challenge. Now I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for 35 years and vegetarian for longer. And the foundation of my work has been to reduce pain and suffering. Certainly with veganism, I connect it with Healthier eating and things that are gentler on the environment, in addition to eliminating horrific cruelty to animals. But in doing so, it opened my eyes, and my eyes continue to see things because of that step I took. And I know other people feel the same way. And that's a good thing. And that's one of the things that I enjoyed about reading your book because it helped me see things differently which we all need to do we need to be open to things we don't even think about so there's that thank you for that
1: going vegan raises all kinds of questions i mean maybe you want to ask me something more specific about that but uh, but you know definitely people have different ideas about what the purpose is of being vegan and uh, and the big question of whether it's better to uh you know to to seek purity and avoid any kind of kinds of animal products or whether one should be focused really on maximum impact. And, and the question is what happens when these two goals collide?
0: Yeah, you do talk about that in the book and I enjoyed that conversation as well. There's a lot of good stuff in there that people would enjoy reading about. I wanna talk about a couple of things, non-existence and antinatalism. So let's start with non-existence. Um, I've had many conversations with people and we talk about humans and how awful we can be and the horrific cruelty and that for that life is about suffering depends on the range of it. And should we really exist? And and now with global warming and all the disasters that are happening, a lot of people say, well, maybe it's better that we do wipe ourselves out. And a lot of people have a hard time with that because there's something in our DNA that says of course we're supposed to exist we're like the best things that ever happened and and I want to dig into this but first i want to ask you about how do we know that there's nothing else before birth and after death i'm not a religious person <laughs> but there's so there's so much that i don't have any comprehension of that goes on in life that, you know, how do I know that there's not something before and after?
1: I'll have to claim that that's beyond my (laughs) range of expertise.
0: (laughs) Of course.
1: No, I mean, I I, I guess in some ways we, we don't know. Um, I would just say that maybe it's best to base our decisions on things that we do know. And, um, and also, Exercise a certain amount of humility uh, about the possibility of there being things out there that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, there, there are ideas out there, uh, including from some pretty intelligent people, that our whole world is actually a simulation. On some,
0: I think uh, about it all the time.
1: I mean, I don't personally believe that. I, I, I don't think that the arguments for that are as airtight as some of the proponents suggest um, and I, I think it's actually just a simpler explanation That you know what, what we see is what we get i mean but um but i mean just the, the idea that that hypothesis is taken seriously by um by some people who you know have some pretty let's say are are not stupid um it suggests that you know there are a lot of Possibilities about, uh, possibilities about existence that um, are at least worth contemplating and that things might be a lot crazier than we think.
0: We just don't know. And then the other thing is not bringing more children into the world. I know I made that decision very young. I recognized that there was a lot of suffering and I knew that there would be no guarantee that anybody that I created was going to have a happy life or a life full of suffering. And I just didn't want to take that risk. So I made a decision not to have children. We have a lot of problems on the planet now due to overpopulation. So let's talk about that.
1: So that ties in with the the larger question of existence versus non-existence. And, um, you know how do we think about existence and is non-existence a problem and well actually there's a section in my book as you know where I say I title it specifically that non-existence is not a problem um but that's a very counterintuitive thought and I mean just to give you an example a few hours ago I was going for a walk very close to where I live uh uh just outside of central Athens um beautiful sort of country uh, suburban countryside area right next to a mountain uh with views of the sea and it was it was beautiful it was a beautiful sunny day and I was listening to some great electronic music that I like and I was thinking yeah this is I'm really enjoying myself now this is a I, I would I would be a very happy person to experience this every day and I can imagine that people enjoying similar kinds of experiences would think you know this life is fantastic and okay there's some suffering out there but you know that goes along with it you know it, it's really a matter of whether one is willing to um, empathize with the people that are having entirely different experiences, whether you know just just the news coming out of Ukraine, which is you know it's just one example, but it's very much in the news and it's very present and um Without depressing people by going into the details, um, you know it's pretty horrific. Uh, I would never want to exchange places with somebody like that, um, or with a cow or a pig or a chicken on a factory farm that spends its life uh, in misery. Um, so you know you can ask your question does does existence and the bliss of some people um, justify that that the suffering that others experience? um and and there's also the idea of how do you know how do we think about non-existence is that a problem in itself um you know if we look at an empty planet that doesn't have any life on it you know is there a need to fill it with life you know I, i mean okay elon musk would like to colonize mars um okay you could ask why why would you even want to do that we've got this planet here that is perfectly suitable for life it's got water, it's got the right temperature, and we haven't done a very good job of figuring out how to live peacefully on it. Uh, why would we want to go to an inhospitable planet and, and, and try to fill it, with, fill it with life? You know, that's more of a practical issue. But, you know, at a more philosophical level, um, there, isn't, there isn't an inherent need to fill the void of non-existence with sentient life. and that that doesn't mean that sentience is a problem, and of course, you know, once we exist, it's a whole different situation, because we, you know, we we want we want to we want to thrive, and you know, reversing the situation would mean potential destruction, and that's not a very appealing solution, and it would be <laughs> it would be highly counterintuitive, and we wouldn't get very far, even if. Even if somebody wanted to, uh, you know that, that's not a viable solution. The question is, how can we how can we deal with things adequately, given the situation that we've essentially inherited? Um, and then sort of talking more specifically about about antinatalism, well, you know that's that is one response to to the situation that we're in. Um, um, and it's, you know, I think it's a very rational response that we can. You know, if we can find other ways to be happy than by having lots of children, um, you know, there, there are there are other ways that we can satisfy the needs that children fulfill, and potentially have more impact in the world by doing that. Um, that doesn't mean that I think that the most important thing to do is to tell everybody not to have children. I think um, I think people have yeah, people have the right to have children. I think it's worth. Reflecting uh, on, that. I think it's a decision that re- that does require uh, reflecting on. Um, and in any case, you know, in the short section of my book where I discuss antinatalism, I suggest that if one decides to have, have children, um, one should take every measure possible to minimize the risk of them suffering, and also to instill in them compassionate values, so that adding them to the planet will actually have some sort of impact so that they might be less um, less, let's say more sensitive to to suffering and more willing to make a difference themselves
0: i come to this first for non-human animals that was how i got started on my whole activist path and uh, i really would like to see the end of industrial farming of non-human animals for food okay that's always been my number one thing and also, unfortunately, a lot of humans are exploited and suffer as well, and it would be nice for all that urgent, horrific suffering to go away. Mm-hmm. But do we need to suffer? Is that like part of the human condition? And, I, and it's a two-sided question, because there's so many stories about how utopia is boring.
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, i mean you know I, I think a lot of a lot of suffering is rationalized after the fact so people go through awful experiences that they probably wouldn't want to repeat
0: mm-hmm. certainly if
1: you ask them at, at that moment they would say no you know this is nobody should ever have to experience that but once you've gone through it and you're a survivor and you you feel the the relief of the suffering being behind you um then it's a lot easier to to thrive you know it depends on what you've actually experienced but we you know we we create meaning for ourselves through the experiences that we have and we we see meaning also in suffering that we've experienced and you know i think i think that's a very valid let's say coping mechanism or way of way of making sense of our experience but at the same time i think it would be it would be irrational to use that as a justification for perpetuating suffering. Um, the idea that life would be boring if we didn't have suffering, well, you know, I mean, it's clear that making through a challenging situation and coming out stronger, um, we you know we, we might feel very, feel good about ourselves afterwards, but that doesn't mean that the suffering is necessary. I mean, I think we can have perfectly meaningful lives without experiencing a lot of suffering and i I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a myth that we tell ourselves that the suffering is necessary um you know if you think about all the beautiful experiences that we can have they don't necessarily involve suffering you know spending time with people that we care for connecting with other people and going for walks in nature and you know i can i can i can rattle off a whole list of you know, I, I'm experience. not gonna
0: argue with you, but sometimes sometimes we need contrast in order to appreciate the good. And yeah. that and maybe good is not the right word.
1: <laughs> um th- there's something to be said absolutely for contrast. And you know, I'm not I'm not saying that I would necessarily want to absolutely eradicate all suffering. I, I really do put a focus on extreme suffering. I mean, then, you know, the organization that I founded is the organization for the prevention of intense suffering. I think there are, you know, there's lower level suffering that we put up with and it's just not that bad. We're, you know, we're still happy to be alive and even when we experience it, you know, suffering, even though, you know, this is another, another question of semantics, you know, all suffering has something in common, which is the fact that at the moment you would actually prefer not to be experiencing it, you know, uh, i'm putting i'm putting voluntary suffering in a different category because if you could avoid it then it's not really suffering in the same sense um so all suffering has a subversive quality to it but at the same time there's a very big difference between stubbing your toe and and being tortured and so again i really try to focus on the things that are just you know really near the extreme end of the scale where we don't need a contrast with that in order to derive meaning
0: you came up with a type of framing that you call x and u plus now you spent many pages on getting to this and i can't expect you to give us a complete explanation but maybe you could give us an idea of what this is
1: sure you know, I talked earlier about consequentialism, which is basically measuring the value of an action by the impact it has. Um, I mean, typically it would be about whether an action is good or bad, but I, you know, again, I don't use that framing, but it, it means basically that impact matters. And utilitarianism is a form of consequentialism, um, you know, which typically focuses on something like utility, which at least in one variation is a matter of well-being, you know, it doesn't. Does it increase happiness? Does it decrease suffering? And it's a very popular framework, especially within the community that I'm part of, because it lends itself to mathematical calculations. And it's based on these core things that matter to people and animals, being happy and not suffering. So that's sort of a starting point. I focus on, because I focus on suffering, and I think that suffering has a different Kind of quality that needs to be addressed—that happiness, that the creating happiness doesn't—I use the term. Uh, the the N refers to negative utilitarianism. That that's a, uh, a term that was coined in the middle of the twentieth century, and it's not a very good term because it sounds like it's the opposite of utilitarianism. And really, what it just means is that you know is that we focus on the suffering because suffering has a call to action. The X is something I added more recently and the x is basically what i was just saying before is that you know let's focus on extreme suffering and not get distracted by things like pinpricks and specks of dust in the eye the kinds of things that people will use as sort of (laughs) counter arguments against negative utilitarianism you know things that really are trivial and don't matter because people care about suffering not because of these minor not because of these minor forms of suffering but but because of you know let's say torture level suffering and then i added the plus Well, I, actually i already put put the plus in in my first book i had the idea that if negative utilitarianism suggests that it would be better if there were nothing well we can put in a clause that says well yeah we can we can still respect the human desire to thrive and to derive meaning from life and to be happy and so i i, I added that plus as a way of modifying this focus on suffering and i develop it in my new book the book is the tango of ethics and this is really the core idea that there's there's this striving for balance between these two very different motivations or ways of being in the world so from a more detached perspective we might say well this, the suffering is what really matters in terms of action let's focus on that because there are things that should really just never be allowed to happen and you know we we should be devoting our energy um to have as much impact on that as possible but then the plus is saying well you know we're also human beings who who have this need to enjoy blissful experiences and to just feel like human beings and not just uh agents of damage control on this on this crazy flawed planet that we live on. What I've tried to do is reframe ethics where we're not trying to find an external balance in the world between happiness and suffering. In other words, there's no ideal amount of happiness that will balance out the suffering, like I was saying earlier. My my whole point is really that the, the balance is to be found within us. How do we find a balance between these two contrasting urges that we have? To just live like normal human beings who enjoy all the sublime experiences that are possible, but also respond to the urgency in the world. And and I do think of them as being on different levels. It's not a, it's not like there's some magic ratio between them where between happiness and suffering where everything balances out it's really a matter of how we reconcile these two needs within ourselves or let's say the need that is external to ourselves that we respond to and the need we have to live more intuitively and give us ourselves some space to to thrive without feeling guilt for not doing more in the world and yeah this this metaphor I find it very really useful because it, um, it applies to different aspects of ethics and I think to life in general, the yin and the yang, the digital mode where we're running algorithms and trying to optimize. And then the more analog mode where we're not using that, that, our rational capacities in the same way and we're just being present in the moment. Instead of searching for some optimal answer, it's basically saying, okay, it's a dance and it's not even clear who is leading (laughs) you know okay we start off as intuitive human beings but then you know we think more about the world and we think oh we have it's important to have impact and you know maybe the world's a lot worse than we would have thought and so then we we might take on this more rational mindset but but we still find ourselves being pulled back to the human being the intuitive side of ourselves that lives in a different kind of way i i think maybe i'm not expressing this so well but it's really it's really two aspects of what it means to be human that somehow need to be reconciled and i think i think this is an authentic way of of framing the um the issue of ethics is how do we how do we live as human beings how do we live in integrity with ourselves and also respond to the urgency outside of ourselves
0: Well, I certainly would love our politicians to delve a little bit more into these concepts, because clearly they're making a lot of decisions for a lot of us, and they're really not based on anything useful. But but I don't want to go there right now. (laughs) Can we talk about, in just a few minutes left, your work at the prevention of intense suffering?
1: Sure. So I founded Opus um, in the middle of uh, 2016. And the idea was, okay, I'd written one book, I didn't have any initial intention of writing another book, you know. Even though I, I really enjoy writing and put my putting my ideas into words, um, which I sometimes do better than than when I'm expressing myself spontaneously with um, with speech. I like the idea of of trying to nail down concepts and, and and express them as clearly as I can. But I thought that okay, maybe I could have more impact by actually trying to have impact in the world by by doing advocacy advocacy work and uh, putting the ideas into action and i'd had the idea of you know for for several years actually of setting up an organization and with the support of some close colleagues with very different very similar ethical views to mine. uh, I created Opus uh, as an association uh, officially based in Switzerland. And uh, we call it a think and do tank because it is to reflect on on ethics and um and how to put ethics into action and then actually executing the ideas that we have. The, my initial idea was actually that we would focus more on non-human animal suffering just because of the uh, the extent of it, but as things turned out, we've been more focused until now on a couple of cause areas that relate to human suffering uh, and specifically uh, extreme pain in humans. And that was partly just because of opportunities that arose where um, there was some very obvious severe suffering with some very um, obvious solutions that could be, um, that could be advocated for. So specifically um, There are many people in the world who are unable to get morphine when they're in severe pain. In fact, most of the world's population lives in countries that are unable to get morphine. Um, And morphine is just one of the it's one of the few things that actually works when people have a certain level of pain. Um, Yeah, people, uh, typically people with terminal cancer pain, Uh, when I say morphine, that also refers to other opioids. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a fear that people will become dependent and, uh, develop addictions. And there's also a fear that it will be diverted to the black market. Huh. And, um, you know, the opioid crisis in the U S has led to a lot of unfounded fears in the U S as well as in other countries that giving opioids to terminal cancer patients will, uh, or to other patients will cause them to be addicted or, um, or lead to other problems. And it's just, there different there are, there are different problems here. Um, I would just just say that in the u s, what's happened is that people who really need opioids um, and not, not only terminal cancer patients who have trouble getting getting them, but also people who've been on opioids for for chronic pain find themselves unable to obtain opioids anymore and end up uh, you know suffering severely. Um, and and that's all been a response to opioid uh, overdoses, which are. Basically, due to um, to um, people getting drugs on the black market and um, not knowing about the purity and then overdosing on fentanyl. and you know there there are better solutions to that than um, than just making opioids unavailable altogether. and And this fear of opioids has is one of the reasons why opioids are very difficult to get in many countries. so, um, yeah, just to make a long story short, we've been focusing on that, uh, at least initially. Um and we had a collaboration with uh, a palliative care organization in Burkina Faso in West Africa. we And we had a conference there with the Ministry of Health, and we helped to launch a palliative care program in the country, which involves the production of morphine. and um, and little by little, uh, we expect that many more people will be able to get morphine there in the country so that at least if they're faced with terminal cancer, uh, they can at least live the ends of their lives without pain. And more recently, we've been focusing on another issue also related to pain, which is cluster headaches, mm-hmm. which despite the um, despite the name, which can sound... Uh, Perhaps a bit benign. I mean, headaches are not something most people take very seriously, but it's uh, it's actually one of the most excruciating conditions known to med- known to medicine. Um, wow. It's also as the nickname "suicide headaches" because people with this condition are regularly killing themselves because the pain is just uh, so intense. There are medical solutions, but they're not they're they're far from ideal. They don't work for everybody. You know, I, I, I can't stress this enough. It's just one of it's just Horrible to read about what these patients go through. I mean, I wouldn't wish I wouldn't wish this on anyone. It turns out that certain psychedelics are very helpful. And mm. many patients have reported dramatic effects by taking magic mushrooms. Um, and there are other psychedelics that have also been found to be very effective, like LSD, like uh, DMT, which can cause headaches to uh to be aborted within seconds. Wow. But of course, of course, there are you know, there are legal barriers. Most in most countries, these are strictly illegal. So we've been advocating for better access through the through the medical system but also that nobody should be prosecuted for um for obtaining these uh these substances to relieve their own pain and so this is ongoing work that we're doing also in collaboration with a few organizations and including in canada and in finland But our larger, uh, our larger goal is to promote the ethics themselves, because at least in theory, if government, if if governments will take suffering more seriously and look at all the implications for, um, for an ethical framework that focuses on suffering, then all the various different ways that suffering can be addressed um, might be taken more seriously. And so, it's sort of, I feel like it's a kind of a higher level approach. but the idea is still that the ethics will will play out in terms of addressing all these very specific causes, which include, more, you know, access to morphine, uh, relief of cluster headaches, ending of factory farming, and many other specific causes of suffering. Which, you know, it, it, any any government or politician that takes these ethics seriously um, would then look at all the different ways that they can uh take effective action against suffering, and I think there's a lot to be said for um for promoting these ethics and and you know making a compelling rational, and emotional case for addressing all the different forms of extreme suffering with the urgency that they deserve and you know you were saying earlier that it seems that what i'm what I'm doing is a, little bit, a bit unusual um, I I would like to think that Opus is a different kind of organization that is, um, rather than just focusing on one specific area, um, hopefully we'll have some success in promoting the the values themselves and how they play out.
0: I hope so. So the Organization for the Prevention of Intense Suffering, you can find that at preventsuffering.org. And for more information on you, Jonathan Layton, We have JonathanLayton.org, and we've been talking about your new book, The Tango of Ethics, Intuition, Rationality, and the Prevention of Suffering. If any of this conversation has been intriguing to you, there's definitely more that you can dig into in this book, The Tango of Ethics. So Jonathan, I'm so glad that you exist (laughs) Thank you for your thoughts and for your writing and for spending time with me today.
1: Oh, Thanks so much, Karen. It's, re- it's really been a pleasure talking to you and yeah, being a- having an opportunity to reach out to-, to your listeners and tell them about these ideas. Hopefully some of them will resonate.
0: Indeed. That was Jonathan Layton, the author of The Tango of Ethics, Intuition, Rationality, and the Prevention of Suffering. There is so much food for thought to digest in this book, and I do hope that many of you pick it up and read it and start thinking about so many of the concepts that are presented in this well thought out book. We need to be more open-minded and consider so many approaches to ethics to ultimately prevent and alleviate suffering at the very least extreme suffering it's been another episode of it's all about food thank you for being there thank you for joining me thank you for listening i'm karen Hartglass. you can find me at responsible eating and living.com please send your comments and questions to me at info at have a delicious week